Hello and welcome to Campfire Conversations, stories from the center of the universe, where we bring the stories from our campfire to your ears, wherever you are in the world. Here we chat to friends over a favorite drink, enjoy the crackle of the fire, and let the real stories of life in the bush be told. Let's get talking to some bushveld legends and hear about their finest hours, the moments that made them question it all and what keeps them coming back for more. Today's drinks of choice are gin and tonic and conservation lager. Some yeah. people have had a cap of gin just to get them going. So without further ado, let me introduce my special guests and friends, Mike Grover and Joe Cooper. How's it, Brett? How's it? How's it? Ah. Thanks for having us. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. I'm going to start with Joe. A uh, quick introduction and off we go. Joe was born and raised in Cape Town, South Africa. Joe spent his adult life working as a tour guide in various parts of Southern and East Africa. Joe says, the day I started my field guide studies, I lost my heart to Africa. The intricacy and simplicity of life in the wild is something that just latched on and wouldn't let go. It wasn't until I started guiding overland tours a few years later that I got to know some of the people and places of rural Africa. Spending time living in these small villages and getting to know the humble people of these communities opened my heart all over again. Once I started making these heartfelt connections, my mind began churning with thoughts of what footsteps through Africa could be. Joe is a mechanic, chef extraordinaire, hunk who wears no shoes, only a sarong. The main question of this podcast is what is under the sarong? Thanks to my friend Daryl Harris for sending through that question. Joe's a driver, a host, a friend, an all-round good guy. He is a hero in a Ugandan village. I have seen him receive a welcome like a king. I enjoy his company, and here he is. Joe has some crazy stories, which I've heard around campfires. Some are too crazy to tell, but we'll get back to him. Our other guest today is Michael Grover. I met Mike Grover just before the Soccer World Cup 2010 at a very large night gathering around quite a well-known game reserve, but we'll leave it at that. Mike is a thinker, a networker. He understands conservation, unlike some people on Facebook. He knows human and wildlife. He knows human versus wildlife. He has two beautiful daughters. He's an entrepreneur. He understands and brings together tech and wildlife and speaks fluent Shitsonga. Uh, Mike is a landscape manager. He brings conservation and technology together, was an ecologist in the Greater Kruger, studied at the University of Pretoria, Onestepoort, was the Wild Coalition winner 2013, presented at the World Wilderness Congress in Spain, and received the International Anti-Up Award for Best Use of a Smartphone App, Washington, D.C., 2013. Mike also developed an app in the early days of technology to mitigate and track rhino poaching. Jeez. Gentlemen, anything I got wrong? No, 100%. You've done your research. Yeah. Right? Sure. <laughs> anything you want to add there? All-round nice guy. He is also, <laughs> and most importantly, the captain of the, was the captain of the Skakuza Cricket Club and drives cricket and touch rugby in the town of Hootsprite. 
But his most amazing achievement and the one I'm most jealous of is definitely captain of Skakuza Cricket Club. Moving along swiftly, we are going to start with some random questions which uh, some of our followers have sent in today. For Mike, I have a question to start. It comes from at James Carl Rob. Who do you think would win in a fight between John Varty and Gary Player? Oh, hands down, John Varty. So, so Gary Player is all about practice. John Varty is completely off the cuff. <laughs> like, there is no question about it. Love the answer. Okay, good. I like that. I know some friends who, who debate that, but I like that. Money's on John Varty, baby. Um, Joe Cooper. Random. So, from Africa Come Alive. One of the first female rangers at Marla Marla. She says, who is your favorite wellness guide and what is the biggest fish you have caught? The biggest fish I have caught is probably about a 15 centimeter <laughs> trout. Jeez, okay. <laughs> caught in the Nile River. Um, so I didn't live up to its reputation of these massive Nile perches. Uh, my favorite uh, wellness guide... Brett, are you a wellness guy? <laughs> well for some people. Absolutely you are. <laughs> there you go. Brett Hawley himself. Okay. Um, I have a question here from Craig Edmund. It says, who's the worst birder in the Wild Boys for Life birding club? So I'll take that. The worst birder in the Wild Boys for Life birding club is at the law 777 by far. So it goes out to you, my friend. Um, from Byron Lotta, a very, very good friend and the captain of the Jocks of the Bushveld. Uh, Mike, what is your most epic wildlife encounter? Jeez, that's it's a hard one to answer because there's, there's a lot. But I think uh, the thing that springs to mind is, is always those situations that most people aren't fortunate enough to, to sort of see. So it's not on a game drive, it's the behind-the-scenes stuff that I was able to be involved in rhino capture, darting lions and stuff. I think probably the wildest was we had a, a, a couple of lions that had been, um, well, they thought that they'd eaten a, a rabid dog, and so we had to try and uh, vaccinate them for, for rabies. And it was three youngsters that had been sort of quite shy and, and been away from the, the pride and were very skittish. And we couldn't find them for, I don't know, two days, and you've got like a 72-hour window that you can give them the vaccination and, and treatment and try and see if you can um, alleviate the, the possibility of them getting rabies. And we'd been driving around for hours uh, trying to find the, these lions. We'd baited, we'd called, we'd dragged things and just didn't seem to be getting anywhere. And uh, my wife at the time was with, with me. Um, I think she was about six months pregnant. And it was about, I don't know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, so getting hot in the African bush. And we decided, right, this is the last one. We're going to drag this um, carcass, and then if they don't come, then we'll, we'll head on home. And she was sitting on the back. Um, I'm not actually sure why. I probably chucked her out because it was more comfortable. I, don't know. <laughs> I actually don't know why. But uh, she was sitting on the back, and we were bolting along. And I got to the end of where we were going to go, and I just said, no, we're not, we're not going to find them. So I'll just drag this carcass off, and I'll go and unhook it. And about 300 meters after I'd said that, these three young lions came bolting out of the bush and jumped onto this impala carcass, and we were skiing behind, trying to grab this thing. So in my haste to, to try and 
get the vaccination and get hold of the, the vet and all that sort of thing. I totally forgot that my wife was still on the back. <laughs> I was phone in one hand, chatting to the vet, saying, like, we've got these lines. So he said, well, he's still 45 minutes away, so make sure that they um, are still there. And after all the effort we'd gone through, that was my priority. So we came down to a, a spot where it would be perfect. And I stopped and I told my wife, whatever you do, don't let them eat the entire impala because we've got to keep these animals here. And now these youngsters had been starving for the last few days. And so they were devouring this impala. And one, we'd used a, a rope to, to tie it onto the back of the vehicle. And one started to swallow the rope. So I asked Candace to reach over and try and pull the rope out of the lion's mouth. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I mean, I came close to divorce that day as well as uh, pure exhilaration. But I think those, those sorts of situations, which I've got many of, are the kind of things that you realize in conservation there is so much going on behind the scenes that people don't, don't even know about. And that happened at the spur of the moment. You can't capture it on film. You can't capture it anywhere else other than a story. And uh, I think that, but that one stands firm in my mind that these sort of one and a half, two-year-old lions skiing behind the bucky and then trying to, to gobble that impala so quickly that we have to pull the the rope out of the thread. Sure. That is awesome. Yeah. That's an epic wildlife encounter. <laughs> That's cool. That's very cool. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Joe, um, what have we got here? From a good friend of mine, Wildlife Lou, um, and I've had some amazing experiences. He says, what is your most memorable wildlife experience on foot and why? I mean, I think we can adapt that. So, um, what is your most memorable wildlife experience? Um, sure. My most memorable experience I've had was probably seeing the Great Migration yeah. in Kenya, Tanzania. It's something that obviously everybody around the world has heard of, but not that many people get to actually see the mighty river crossing when the wildebeest thunder across the river. So it was only last year, it was the first time in my life I actually got to see it. Spent a few years on the Mara River, during the right time of year, over sort of July, August, but I've never been lucky. So last year, finally, we saw the migration crossing, and that's something I'll never forget. Um, it's quite an emotional experience. These guys really struggle going across. Um, yeah, obviously from a vehicle that wasn't from on foot. Yeah. Um, but yes, I've had lots of, plenty of incredible experiences. Here. So also on foot in the Okavango Delta, um, yeah, walking through tall grass, hey, friggin' halfway up your chest and trying to get to the next island where it's a little bit more open and coming across a pride of lions sleeping in this grass. You can't see them until you're on top of them and they don't see you coming if the wind's in, the right, in your favor. And suddenly you're two meters away from a pride of lions eh, and they jump and get as big a fright as you do and back off and you do the same thing and nobody knows what to do. Um, but yeah, some unbelievable times. Eh? Love it. Yeah, yeah, it's been awesome. That is. So those are two two top memories that come to mind. Love yeah. it, man. Mm. Um, with you, Joe, so let's go quickly. Your favorite park in Africa? Favorite park in Africa is Murchison Falls National Park. Mm-hmm. Mm. Where you, you took know, me and yeah. convinced me and told me and I went there. And you yeah, said we were going to exactly. see 60 giraffe at once. And I laughed and I doubted <laughs> you. I was like, this guy's crazy. Yeah. And the, we spent a day, and the other thing you said, any time in the day you can turn around and see three or four species of mammals. Yeah. And there was not a single moment in those days that we turned around and could not see three or four species of mammals. Mm. And one day we drove 
And for a couple of hours, there was not one second where you could not see a giraffe. Yeah. For sure, there must have been over a hundred, hey, in that on that specific game drive. Yeah, just constant. It's this herd of giraffe constantly on our on our right hand side. It was awesome, man. And Murchison Falls is always like that, and you you never you never have a dull game drive there, hey. Um, even the scenery with the Nile River going along the entire southern side of the park, and then you look to the other side, and it's just these rolling grass plains with these palm nut trees everywhere, and just full of life. Hey? And I think the trip we did together, what, what blew me away was the actual falls and how yeah. it actually blew the, yeah. the, the guests that we were with, how, how the fall, the Murkison Falls blew them away. It's incredible yeah. where the Nile River obviously comes into yeah. that point. But yeah, you sold me Murkison Falls and it's exceeded my expectations. Yeah, I'm glad far. you finally came, Brett. Yeah, it's like so three years <laughs> after first asking me about it. <laughs> and I am Super glad you made it, yeah. <laughs> my yeah. favorite park in Africa. Yes, that's a... Uh, a really tough one. Can I give two? 100%. So I, th I think uh, undoubtedly the Sabi Sand. Yeah. Mainly because of all the great memories um, and things that, that I've seen there. Um, but I'd say the, the second one uh, would have to be like the, the Transfrontier Park in Limpopo mm -hmm. um, on the Kruger boundary. Just there's something special about it. It's not there for the wildlife, uh, for the wildlife viewing as mm -hmm. such, but the, the baobabs that are there and the, there's something special about it because it's been born of a bigger picture and the work that and energy that went into that getting Zimbabwe, Mozambique and South Africa to, to sort of drop the fences and, and what it means for conservation I think is, is probably something that's, that's quite special. In itself. Is that like the Gonorizo side and Zim that you're talking about? Yeah, so that yeah. side and then moving down to the Mozambique. Mm. Uh, it's just a special place and I think it's it's almost like the heartbeat of yeah. the Greater Kruger. Greater Kruger is fantastic, yeah. but that is the heartbeat of it all and, and it has it's such... wilder. Yeah, it's wilder yeah. and it has such potential yeah. and it's bringing three countries together, It's managing. people are managing it yeah. um, together. Yeah. Um, I'm going there next year for the first time. I okay. cannot wait. It is, it is phenomenal. Yeah. Joe, let's start with the, this walk that you did. People don't know much about it, obviously, Ooh. or anything, but as seen on the Expresso show in South Africa, the Good Things Guy blog, the SouthAfrican.com, you... Well, you tell us. You tell us about this walk. Okay, so basically it's the reason I named Footsteps Through Africa, Footsteps Through Africa. Um, it was a walk that I started from the most southern tip of South Africa or of Africa in Cape Orgullis up to Uganda where I started my non-profit company. Um, so the total was 7,200 kilometers. Jeez. I managed just under 4,000. <laughs> so I got sort of halfway up Mozambique. I'm still convinced I'm going to finish it one day, but life took over and after a year or 14 months of on and off walking, yeah, I mean, I had to start working and making some money and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, like I said, 14 months um, walking along the coast, so off the beaten track completely, just following the beach the entire way, um, up to Vilanculos in Mozambique is where I, where I stopped the walk. And it was one of the most unforgettable experiences I've ever had, eh? I almost died a couple of times. I was yeah. washed out to sea once. That's, I want to know about that. Petrified. I've heard yeah. this cave story, but yeah. I, can you... Okay, so mind? it was... Yeah, yeah, I can talk about that. Um, 
So I was walking just on the garden route in South Africa between Plettenberg Bay and Nature's Valley. Um, there's this cave. Um, so basically there's not a lot of development whatsoever along the coast there. It's mountains and pine forests the whole way. And I had probably walked about 30 kilometers from Keerworms town <clears throat> just after Plate. Um, 40 kilometers of nothing, just me on the beach by myself. Um, walking and it was amazing and somebody barefoot, had knew, in a sarong barefoot with your back yeah back. in a sarong if that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's nothing <laughs> under the sarong <laughs> and um, yeah and a 28 kilogram backpack on my back and yeah music and just having a good time on the beach and a friend of mine that had a house in Keerworms had told me that further down the beach there's this cave that you can only cross during low tide so I was obviously watching the tides through my whole walk because I only like walking at low tide when the sand's nice and hard. Soft sand is a killer with a big backpack on your back. Um, but yeah, so I reached the point of the cave sort of probably around midday and I knew that 3 p.m. was um, low tide exactly. So I just waited around until 3 p.m. And I went through this cave and the cave sort of went out into the ocean and then you walk around in the ocean, around the cave, then back up to the coastline again onto the beach. So at three o'clock I went into this cave, probably walked about 10 meters in, and then you have to go walk, to turn right and go into the ocean itself. And it drops down into the water. And I looked and it was still looking rough, hey? So there were still waves crashing into this cave and I was just thinking, sure, this is low tide. I'm glad I didn't try at high tide. Anyway, I just thought this is the time to do it. So I just stepped in and I started walking. And as soon as I stepped in, I just went right down, I couldn't touch the bottom. My backpack was like a pushing me over and pushing my face into the water. And the swell just pulled me out of the cave and into the open ocean. And I was trying to grab onto the walls, I couldn't grab onto anything. And I was swimming and swimming as much as I could, but with this big backpack on with my entire life in it, couldn't make any progress. So I took one arm off the backpack and started swimming, holding the backpack. And I just thought, sure. I mean, what the, what the hell else am I going to do now, you yeah. know? And then, luckily, I looked, I turned around. It felt like it had been 20 minutes of struggling. In reality, it was probably five minutes or less. But I looked around, and there was this big wave coming back to the cave. So I was just like, okay, this is my only chance. I just started swimming with the wave. And luckily, the wave swept me back into the cave, smashed me against rocks, and... Yeah, into the cave itself to the point where I could grab on and pull myself onto the ledge again. And now my backpack with my life and it was soaking wet and now weighed over 40 kilograms, dripping with water. And, I had to and no music. That. And no more blooming music. <laughs> yeah, the whole time I had my phone in my hand. I even started the walk through the cave doing a video and then splashed into the water and my phone turned off. Luckily it didn't break. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I managed to pull myself out of the cave. Um, pulled my bag out of the cave and backtracked, eh? and I phoned friends of mine in Nature's Valley, which was another 15 k's past the cave, and I just looked on my, yeah, looked on my GPS where the closest little gravel road was, and it was probably about another 15 kilometer backtrack. Oh, so you can't claim that you went <coughs> all the way along the coast, eh? No, these guys <laughs> fetched me, eh? Hey? <laughs> yeah, hitched a ride for that little section. Um, but also because the tide, oh, so I realized why 
I couldn't go through, and it turns out it was a spring tide. Oh, so it never goes full high, never goes full low, and I didn't realize that until it was too late. Um, but yeah, so because the tide didn't go down properly, and this whole ordeal had taken a few hours, you know, for me to recover and try to get my bearings back and get ready to walk again, um, and try to find signal and everything, um, the tide had started rising again, and I couldn't backtrack to Kierworms Town, so I had to try to climb over these cliffs, which I couldn't do because it was too steep. So I ended up sleeping on a massive rock with ocean on either side of me, and I just lay there and spent the night sleeping. I remember phoning people from the rock as well. So like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Where are you? What are you I'm doing? There. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then the following day I managed to walk over this mountain and friends of mine picked me up on the tar road, I mean on the gravel road, and took me around to the highway and around to Natchez Valley. And then I carried on from there. And did you meet people along the way that like walked with you at all? Yeah, I did, hey. Um, I had four people, or two girls walked with me for three weeks on the wild coast, east coast of South Africa, which was very cool. I had a group of three... Belgians that I met at a backpacker one night also walked with me for about a week um, between two little backpacker wow. towns on the wild coast. Um, and yeah, here and there, people just, for, if it was for a day, two days, um, and one person for an entire month um, walked with me. Yeah, it was great to have company, but also it was great to have company for the first few days. And then it was like, okay, <laughs> I'll walk ahead. <laughs> Hope you're not going to hear this. <laughs> no, it was great to have company all the time. So, okay, that's an incredible story. Uh, I mean, you were close to dying, I guess. It felt like it. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I think I would have been fine, but it did feel like, yeah, it was it was the end. Scary, man. Yeah, it was very So scary. why did you do the walk? So the whole point of the walk was to raise funds for the non-profit company that I started in Uganda. And... Yeah, we managed to raise about $4,000 yeah. um, through the 14 months that I walked. And yeah, it went towards the community projects that we have there. It's um, mainly supporting education. We've built a library there, two libraries there, um, helped build a new school, got a cultural center. Um, and that was all made possible from donations, mainly from the walk, but also constant support from people around the world over the last four years. No, and it's incredible. I've obviously been there and this is this is on the border of windy impenetrable national park mm. in Uganda, you know, where where people are going to see the last remaining mountain gorillas mm. on the planet and now this brings me to Mike, but you know, the communities on the outside of a park like that, for example, in the same situations are just repeating themselves throughout Africa where, you know, what's on the outside, what's on the inside and the influence that you Joe and your supporters have had on the outside of a park which has so much pressure, mm. Windy National Park, and you know how key education is. But I mean, Mike, I'd like you to jump in in terms of your experience, and I don't want to get too nitty-gritty, but I mean, let's touch on this inside and outside of the parks and communities. It is your this is where you excel and this is where Mike makes a difference. So, I mean, basically go wherever you want to go with it. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's it's been a journey of mine working inside a protected area with a very strong fence and and seeing the value of that and the opportunities that that brings in terms of ecotourism and, and potential there and jobs and things. And then also being on the outside. I mean, my, my kids went to school 
um, in a community outside of, of a reserve. And That's right. You go and pick your kids up, uh, and, and you're seeing people who you've been told are poachers, and, and you have that negative connotation, but they're actually just parents. Yep. Um, and I think that's that's the reality of, of Africa, and, and it's what we have that is so difficult but so special at the same time. Um, a lot of Europe has lost their wilderness areas, and, and people are just there, and they're trying to bring it back. So you have the Netherlands trying to conserve little hedges along the way so that they can have badgers. Yet we've got the complete opposite. Is we, We've got these incredible natural areas that people are a part of. And, and what we tend to try and do is push people out to, so, so that we can conserve it. What we should be doing is bringing people in so that they conserve it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the reality that I've seen in, in a lot of my work and a lot of my travels is that the moment you exclude people, they don't feel any value of what that area is and they don't see the benefits of saving it. So why, mm. why do it? Um, and I think that's it's a very simple take-home message that I always see in, in any park is if people don't see value in what you're trying to do, then there, there's no reason for them to do it. Yes, you can tell them that there's 12,000 people employed by this, but if they are not employed or they don't see direct b benefit, they're not, they're not going to care about somebody else getting employed. They want to see some sort of benefit. And I think we, we run the risk of we always think that it's a monetary value. It's not. Like mm -hmm. The ability for people's voice to be heard, to be part of a decision-making team or committee or whatever, the ability for people to maybe even go and harvest things Simple food, medicines, medicinal plants, thatching grass. Like, I've stood with farmers that have watched the management of protected areas burning fire breaks, and their cattle are starving on the outside. And they, they've been in tears, saying, like, that used to be our land. We were chucked off, and now we can't mm -hmm. even touch it because of regulations. Those, those are difficult conversations and, and experiences to have. And I think that's where um, I really see... Africa has an opportunity is most of our best conservationists are people that know the area so well because they've lived in it or around it and we've got to keep pushing that the moment we put a fence up we, we start to, to change the dynamic and it's it's not it's not easy to do because your first way to protect something is to keep it safe but you, you have to start working in a different way around and, and trying to figure out how you incorporate people into into looking after that so that they they sort of need the nature it's <coughs> no, awesome. And, you know, my, and Mike, that's a powerful word. I've obviously known you for a long time. I've been a big fan of yours, and I think Mike <coughs> does what a lot of people talk about. And the whole thing of, you know, the need for African people around these parks to have a vested interest on the inside and what you do, is, this is vital, you know, and what mm. you just said in the last five minutes, this is key, more key than everything. Mm. And, you know, Mike is... He's fluent in Chitsonga, he understands the culture, he understands the people, he sits with the Indunas, he knows how many cattle people have, where they graze, he understands the, the lodges, the conservation, and actually how this whole circle fits together. Mm. So, and they're all at their words. place, eh? and, and that's, the, that's the irony of it all, is that we think that they're mutually exclusive. Like, people complaining that there's cattle moving through the Masai Mara miss the fact that some of the best photographs are taken of herdsmen walking through the Masai Mara. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we can't think that we're purist. We are not. We as humans have tainted the entire earth, whether it be Antarctica or, or like New York City. We've tainted everything. Um, and I think what we have to try and do is how do we live with 
that nature and how do we get people to benefit from everything that we're doing. So safari products are fantastic and people going there need to experience it. But you've got to understand that seeing somebody walking their cattle through an area, if they're allowed to do it and if there's things like that, is part of the process. Mm, yeah. um, driving those really bumpy, crappy roads all the way in is part of the process. It's part of being the adventure that you want to go on, but also being part of what people go through. So you drive where you are. Exactly. So yeah. you drive it once to get to a national park, yeah. and you're like, geez, this six-hour drive is killing my back. Yeah. Now you think people have to do that every time they want to go to their clinic. Yeah. And they probably don't own a car, yeah. so they walk most of the way, or they go in a bus that's cram-filled. Mm. Like, things, things are, are very different when you, when you see the other side. Yeah. And communities have, have this ability to to be for a project and for something yeah. if they see a benefit and we don't recognize how important that is yeah. when, when you do so. I mean, like just your walk and, and the fact that you, you've got a library for, for kids at the f interface of a, of a national park, yeah. like they don't have to leave that area to go and get education or to yeah. go and get access to knowledge. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a full education. It can be access to knowledge. It can yeah. be internet. Yeah. They can stay in their village where they love and they have the sounds of the, the forest yeah. right there, they don't have to leave that area. And, and I think also what you were saying earlier about incorporating communities in the conservation and keeping people in the area and they help conserve it, it's exactly what happened with the Maasai's again in Ngorongoro Crater. They were always allowed to take their cattle down into the crater to feed and in 2015 the government um, said they can't go into the crater anymore. And since then, they've started resenting tourists coming in. Absolutely. Because of tourists being there, they can't take the freaking cattle to, to go and graze where they've been doing for generations and generations. And the ecology, yeah. like that area grows, the grass grows so damn yeah. fast that yeah. you can herd those cattle through if you did it correctly. Yeah. But if you're now pushing people to that, you're not allowing them to come in, and you're pushing them on a certain path, or you're yeah. making them walk at night, yeah. so now they're moving their cattle exactly. in and out during the night time, yeah. following one path, then you get a degraded strip. So, like, that's the irony of it all, is that we think that conservation is saving things to be as wild as possible. I mean, that's not, that, that's yeah. not true. Yeah. You've got to have something that, that is workable that's going to be sustainable for the long term. Mm. So, like, let's figure it out as to what that is. And, again, everything is different. There are some places that you want to keep pristine. <clears throat> yeah. Water catchments and stuff, you don't want to have development there. But there are other areas that, that can. Nature can take a hammering and mm. she can rebound in incredible ways and I think that that's quite a cool thing to see is I've seen degraded areas spring up to life after one rainfall season and you think well here we are worrying that we, we really st stuff in this place up but it can, can change pretty quickly fascinating man <laughs> Joe Cooper so there's two oh, as I said I've spent a few nights around campfires with you um, there's two, yeah, there's two stories that I'm keen to hear, but it's up to you, man, so okay. the floor is yours. <clears throat> okay, so I'll start with the xenophobic one, because uh, this was in the Good same month. Good conversation. Yeah, it was in the same month last year, um, when the, the xenophobia incident happened first. So this was towards heading towards the end of a very busy season of tours, from June, July, August, September, October, November. This was it at the end of September when this happened. And I was very tired, back-to-back -to -back tours, exhausted, and that added to the situation so much. So while I was up in East Africa and Uganda doing tours, there were huge xenophobia protests in South Africa, um, South Africans going against all of the foreign nationals in the country who are supposedly taking all of the jobs. It's a very 
hectic situation that we're not going to get into. Mm. But it got quite violent in South Africa, particularly against the transport industry. A lot of trucking companies had been hiring, so it's, for example, Malawians or Zambians to do the distribution of goods rather than hiring South Africans. So the South Africans started taking it out on the foreign nationals living in South Africa. So in retaliation to that, the Zambia started closing its borders to South Africans, but also the truckers working in Zambia started taking it out on South African truckers in Zambia. So I started transiting my truck down from Tanzania back to South Africa in September. Um, I had been in the bush, I hadn't been listening to any of the news, didn't know what had been going on in South Africa, um, but started driving down, and the closer I got to the Zambian border, the more people started saying, oh, but you know what's happening in Zambia, you know, have you, are you sure you want to go through Zambia? And I thought, what, what's going on? I did a bit of Googling, and I saw with protests in South Africa, I didn't see anything too worrying. Um, but the road I was using, it was a transit drive, so it was just myself and my partner in the vehicle, um, luckily no paying tourists. So I was just taking the highway, the most direct route, which is the main trucking route um, back to South Africa. So I got to the border of Tanzania and Zambia, absolutely exhausted, um, thinking, cool, just two more countries to cross and I'm home. Very excited to get back. And yeah, I got out on the Zambian side and people were looking at us quite, you know, skiffly already, just checking us out, going, you South African brew, what are you doing here? Anyway, didn't think too much of it. And we got stamped out of Tanzania, got back into the vehicle, and we drove across to the Zambian side. Um, it's called Tunduma Border Post. And as soon as we got onto the Zambian side, I just felt this feeling of just uncomfort, you know. I just felt something doesn't feel right here. But we just kept on going through it. Um, the first thing that rang bells were the officials were extremely corrupt. Eh? They were trying to make us pay for all sorts of things that I knew I didn't have to pay for. I'd already paid for half of them, but they were just de demanding $200 for that and that. And I just thought, anyway, but I'm too tired to fight it. It's just going to be easier to just pay them their bribe and or the whatever administration fee. Let's call it that. Um, just to make things quicker. And we got back into the vehicle, and just as we left the border post, these people sort of started going around the vehicle and looking at the number plate, and there was this one guy that screamed, you are South African, you are South African, what are you doing here? And then my heart just sank, our hearts just sank. It was very scary, very scary moment, and I got out of the vehicle, um, leaving my girlfriend in the vehicle, and I ran into the uh, little police station at the border, and just said, listen, man, what's going on here? Like... What's happening? And um, the guy was like, you're South African. Baba, you can't pass. You can't pass through, through Zambia. It's not safe at all. Mm. So I jumped back into the vehicle, and these people were surrounded. Hey? Like a guy was banging on the side of the truck, and it was absolutely petrifying. And so we turned around and went straight back into Tanzania. Um, and we got to Tanzania, and these guys, the, um, the immigration op officers on the Tanzania side, realized the situation and we couldn't cross through Tanzania. So then, of course, they took advantage of this and ended up in total demanding about $600 Jeez. to let us enter, enter Tanzania again. I was just like, listen, that's impossible. I cannot pay that. I don't have it. And the officer looked at me and said, then you can go back to Zambia. Oof. 
And I just thought, oh, are you kidding me? So both of us maxed out our credit cards, maximum withdrawal from every ATM we could see, and just got this pile of Tanzanian shillings and said, listen, this is what we've got. It's just let us into the country. Um, yeah, paid up the bribe and drove the 1,600 kilometers back to Arusha that we had just driven down. Got back to Arusha, and now I have a Botswana tour starting in South Africa. It starts in Johannesburg um, four days later. So, and I was supposed to have these four days in South Africa, but now that can't happen anymore. So, yeah, I immediately found a flight back to SA, started a Botswana tour. Um, no sleep, stress. Just new guests and happy to see them <laughs> and smiling, which was and it was a great tour. That's actually the lion that I told you about earlier and the tall grass that was on that tour. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, did that tour and that Botswana tour ended two days before the Namibia tour started. So straight after they entered this Namibia tour with the sandstorm incident. Okay, so the sun's setting, we're losing light. Okay. And we're running out of gin. <laughs> But we want to know about quickly. the Namibian sandstorm on okay. the back of the xenophobic attack. Yeah. So luckily that Botswana tour in the middle went through without a hitch. It was fantastic. And two days later into the Namibia tour, after those two days were spent transiting from Botswana to Namibia to start the tour. So I started the tour absolutely exhausted. But again, very excited to start exploring the desert. Um, and yeah, there was one particular day we were driving to Sosa's Flay. It's the highlight of Namibia, the reason, the main reason why people want to go there is to see the Sosa's Flay, the famous big red sand dunes. And we happened to pass through on the biggest sandstorm they've had in over five years. This is desert-like. There's absolutely nothing around. Fine, fine sand and rock desert all around you. And the sand, the, the wind was so powerful, I could not see the road in front of me. Um, I could see maybe 10 centimeters in front. So the only reason way I knew I was on the road is that if I started going off the road, I'd hit these big rocks that marked the side of the road. Like I couldn't see the road whatsoever. So I was driving 10, 15 k's per hour just trying to make my way there. The whole truck was swaying back and forth. Um, Yeah, which was hectic anyway. But luckily, you know, we could keep the windows closed and we were in our little safe bubble, you know, in the truck. Um, But yeah, no view of the of the sand dunes or anything, which is quite <laughs> unfortunate. <laughs> um, but so my vehicle has got these pop-up roofs designed for safari. So when you go on game drive, you pop the roof up, you can stand in your seat and you outdoors, you've got a full 360 view. It's amazing for game drive. But apparently it's not great for sandstorms like that. So everything was closed and the roof was bolted in place. And this wind was so strong that it actually got underneath it pushed the roof up and broke one of the bolts and got underneath the roof and the whole roof flung off the truck. Oh, jeez. One bolt stayed connected and hung on. So the roof was still connected to the truck, but it swung over the truck and smashed through three windows on the other side um, and it missed one of my guests' heads by, you know, a few centimeters. So, I mean, luckily, <laughs> that would have made that as yeah. much worse. But... Yeah, so now we are in the biggest sandstorm Namibia's had in five years. No roof on the truck, three broken windows, 12 guests, and just going, what the hell are we going to do now? So me and two of the guests got out of the truck and we grabbed onto this roof. 
and the last bolt that was holding on gave in and we were holding this roof and it was swaying like a freaking flag in the wind and it's a heavy steel roof eh? it's not a light thing but all of the other guests got out and they started collecting big rocks and we managed to get the roof onto the ground and everybody jumped on top of it and we put a mountain of these granite rocks on top of it to hold it down and in place and I just thought we just have to get to a lodge somewhere so the closest lodge to us was 30 kilometers away driving in the sandstorm at 10 k's per hour not seeing the road now with a open top and open side windows at least you had ventilation all the way through. yeah great <laughs> ventilation but honestly everybody just had buffs and covering themselves with jackets being hit by the sand blasted and I was trying to drive in this sand in my eyes and it was a memorable day anyway we eventually arrived at the lodge and we were booked in for a nice night of camping <laughs> so luckily the lodge upgraded us which was very nice of them and yeah I dropped off the guests and I couldn't leave my roof there so I dropped off the guests turned around I took uh, one of the staff members from the lodge came with me to go retrieve my roof that was hopefully still in place so I managed to get back we collected the roof um, after another hour and a half of backtracking the 40 k's that I just come 30 k's put the roof back into the truck um, just put it through the door not attached to anything and an hour and a half back to the lodge sun setting now and I just went and I passed out for the rest of the night and I woke up the next day and started fixing the truck <laughs> and how and long yeah, does that wind, windstorm like say from last? it was that one we were there on the worst day it probably lasted like four or five days in total okay. of the very strong winds Jeez. but we were there on like day three when it was at its peak um, there was just something that happened with my timing last year with the xenophobia attacks with the windstorm the sandstorm yeah um, but yeah it all ended up well we had yeah. an awesome time in Namibia we came back and you came back story to tell the story exactly 100% and it was a fantastic group that embraced every one of every moment that we had you know and even that day in hindsight, they were very glad to have been there for this crazy adventure. But it's also, it's the journey. They were in Sausage Yeah, play. exactly. Sausage <laughs> <laughs> Play in them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That Thanks awesome. for sharing that, Joe. Cool, no worries. Uh, yeah, crazy times out there on the African continent. Yeah. And we'll Mike save some more stories for the next time, bro. Exactly. Yeah. I think we do have to have a version two, a round two. Mike, Anytime. thanks for your time, eh? Yeah, really for having your us. wisdom. Yeah. Um, one last thing. you have any... Good animal noises you can do. No, like, no. I can do a hardy dog. <laughs> hardy dog? Okay, good. You want to hear it? Yes, I do. Ah! That's all I got, though. Okay, that's excellent. Okay, I can probably do the best impression of uh, a quaffle. Uh huh. For those who don't speak of a quaffle, Yeah, that's a great go away, but definitely yeah. there must be a predator in the sky. Yeah. And yours? Let's let's hear yours. Do, uh, I can do a hippo. Very good. I'm just worried somebody's going to think there's a hippo. Yeah. <laughs> and the go away bird and the hardy dog. Yeah, I mean, we're going to finish our our party off, our jaw around the fire, without okay. the recording guy. So thanks very much, guys. Um, for those of you listening. Uh, anything or anybody we talk about, you can find more information about them and what they do in the links below. Uh, this includes all the social media handles and digital channels. Go and give them a big like and some love. These two guys are legends. 
The links will be in the info below this podcast at Activate Africa, A-C-T-I-V, 8 the number, Africa, and at Footsteps Through Africa. Joe Cooper and Mike Grover, Legends of the Bush. Thanks, Wally. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks guys. Great. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. You can find today's guests online via their social media handles linked in this podcast description. Go ahead and give them a follow, share some love, and show some support for what they are doing. We welcome your questions and comments and encourage you to let us know what you're thinking. Who do you want to meet around our campfire and what burning questions do you have for these bush legends? Find us on social media via the links in the description and tune in to watch our podcast recordings from around the campfire on our YouTube playlist. Yeah, they knock a glass over, they don't sit on, it's awesome. Ha, ha, ha.